Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. I think one thing we can say with certainty in Scripture is that our Lord is serious about redemption. He's going to accomplish His promises. And so when we talk about this redemption, it's not some sort of a concession we make in this age that we just say, oh, well, I'm redeemed, whatever. What the Catechism is telling us is that we actually have more of a desire to live unto this Lord. It's not a resignation that this is just my life, this is how it is, but that we're truly going to have a consciousness that we desire to live unto Christ. And so when, when we have this consciousness, we know that it is Christ who takes away our sins, it's Christ who makes us righteous as we've heard. And so as we hear this, and we hear that Christ is the one who takes away our sins. What, what fundamentally changes? What's within us that now we truly desire to live unto the Lord? Uh, what, what really is the point of life, I guess we could say, if we're going to put it that way, in terms of the meaning of life and, and why do we go forward? Why do we get up every day? Well, as we consider this, we'll see in terms of the Lord um, making these requirements at first, uh, he requires perfect righteousness. We rest in God's gracious reward. And lastly, we rejoice in our fruits, that we actually bring forth fruits. And so let's begin with this requiring perfect righteousness. When we hear this, we, we have to understand what the Catechism is saying, the backdrop of this. This is one of the things uh, that Rome was bringing against the Reformers. Uh, you know, the, the reality of uh, or, or the reaction reformers have is that if we're ones who are justified in Christ, as reformers would say, Romans say, well, then why would you go forward? And why not say that you're justified and you add to the work of Christ? And so here the, the reformers are responding and saying, if we're going to try and add to the work of Christ as if it's incomplete or our works make some sort of a contribution to this, well, then we have to define what those works are, right? I mean, we can't just say that, that works are works. And so we, we want to affirm clearly that, that we're called to do good works unto the Lord in this Lord's Day. But right here, we're understanding what the measure is. It has to be perfect. It has to measure up to the divine law. And so this is a, a very serious, objective, righteous standard. Uh, there, there's no wiggle room in this. So, so the moment we disobey a single command, uh, we, we failed. We're, we're done. It's over. But we also have to understand there's a, a fundamental problem we have as human beings. We are imperfect. Uh, I, I know we might say, well, of course we, we affirm that. But it's not just somehow there's something within us that, that's lacking. I mean, we're stained with sin. We're confirmed as sinners. So the the problem within us is that we may think there's something within us that's good, that, that we can, in our own strength, uh, meet the standard of the Lord in terms of this true righteousness. 
But the problem is we can't. Uh, we are imperfect, stained with sin, even our best works. I mean, think about that. Our best works are tainted and stained by sin. Now, so when we hear that, we say, well, that, that sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? I mean, uh, we can't be that bad. But we turn to Isaiah. And in Isaiah, as he gives us this prayer, he begins with a hope. And I think it's important to understand this hope that Isaiah brings out to us. That as he recounts who the Lord is in verse 7, what, what does he recount? We find this uh, repetition of a word at the beginning and end of the verse. Steadfast love. And it's important to understand he's not coming to the Lord because he's a prophet. He's not coming to the Lord because he's a representative of Israel. He's coming before the Lord because of his steadfast love. This means that the Lord is consistent. So when the Lord makes his gospel promise that he's never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, he's never going to turn on us, he's saying, this is what I want to recall for you, O Lord, your steadfast love. So right here, he's beginning to meditate on this concept. And it's important to understand where he's beginning, reminding God of his promise and who God fundamentally is. It's not my righteousness. I'm not worthy to be called your servant. I'm not worthy to be called your prophet. It's your steadfast love. So it's the Lord coming to his people. So as Isaiah recounts this, and, and as some say, this is a prayer of intercession where he's praying on behalf of the people and bringing this up to God, he wants the Lord to remember who he is. That not only does the Lord have a steadfast love, but the steadfast love is manifested. And so one of the things we're, we're learning from this in terms of our Christian walk is what it means to really meditate on the promises of God. It's not just meditating on his deliverance, not just his steadfast love, but his redeeming acts. You know, here Isaiah is not going to the marvelous promise of restoration that begins in Isaiah 40 of the Lord leveling the mountains and bringing his people home. He's not even going to the full glorified uh, kingdom that, that's promised just a few chapters from now. But he's recounting the very origin story of Israel, what, what constituted them as a credible nation called before God. That this is a God who heard the prayers of his people, a God who delivered his people, a God who walked in the midst of his people. And so he recounts who God is. He didn't lie about the people being called his people. He's the one who has a steadfast love. It's manifested in the Exodus. He delivers them. He shows his compassion, shows his mercy. But as we hear this confession in Isaiah 64, verse 7, even as he asks the Lord, you know, why have you turned your face on us? Why have you hardened our hearts? Now, again, it's, it's not blaming God if you read that in the context. Because verse 7, he's really laying out the fundamental problem of, of human nature, isn't he? And this is tragic. I mean, we, we are learning how to confess our sins before our God in terms of what the prophet is teaching us. And he's saying, no one calls upon your name. Think about that fundamental problem. He recounts the, the beauty of what God has done. He recounts the reality of God delivering his people, remembering his people, bringing them through the sea, uh, showing his mighty hand. And he says, look at us. 
No one calls upon your name. Now, when Isaiah says this, another thing that strikes me is it's not Isaiah saying, your people don't call upon your name. Those people are really bad, and I got it figured out. No, it's Isaiah saying, listen, we, we all got a problem. We, we don't appreciate you, understand you, and marvel uh, at who you are in your person, in your being, in your actions, as we ought. We don't call upon your name. We, we don't call out to you as the first resource in terms of orienting our life, whatever it may be. But he goes on to say, who rouses himself to take hold of you. Now this rousing is, is a waking up. And so he, he's speaking of a deadness in God's people and, and a deadness we're, we're prone to have, even as redeemed and being conscious of our redemption, that, that we need to be reminded, rouse up, wake up, take hold of your God is sort of the reminder here. Uh, Deborah uses this in terms of her song of praise. Uh, where it says, awake, awake, you know, calling people to wake up. Uh, we think then of Isaiah 13, 17, where the Lord wakes up the needs against his people. So it's, it's a rousing to action. So it's not just opening your eyes after your alarm goes off, but it's getting up, getting busy with your day, go acting and acting out. And so he's saying that the reality is that no one is consciously pursuing God. And I think this is where we think of the true origin story of Israel, uh, where we think of, you know, the wrestling people, Israel. You know, you have wrestled, you have prevailed. What does God want us to do? He wants us to fight with him, not, not in a bad sense that we're kicking against him, but, but he wants us to, to do a prayer like this. Why do you harden our hearts? Where are you, O Lord? Why, why do you allow this to happen? O Lord, you know. Convict me, may my heart be tuned into you. You know, we can see these sorts of things in the Psalms. And we see this even in Isaiah here. And it's that reminder, oh Lord, you know, we, we, we want to interact with you and see you truly as the true God and who you are. So it's that reminder we're called to be roused up to, to action, to desire this God. But he goes on to talk about a consequence. So he's saying, fundamentally, our problem is we haven't been roused up. We, we haven't woken up. Uh, we, we haven't acted. But he says, but now you've hidden your face from us. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's a scary place. This is the Lord turning his back. And it's a place where the Lord's basically saying, you want your sin? You desire your sin? You think your sin's going to bring you joy? Fine. Here's your sin. Have it. Live in it. Enjoy it. And it's where Israel goes over to Babylon and go, oh, we don't want our sin. This isn't fun. We don't enjoy this as much as we thought we did. This is not pleasurable at all. Lord, come back to us. That's what Isaiah is getting at, that the Lord has hidden his face. He said, here you go. Go your way. Exercise your wisdom over my wisdom and deal with the consequence of it. This is underscored in what you find in the parallel line. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. I mean, think about how that is. Basically, we've, we've crafted our own sins, right? That's what it's saying. You, you can't turn to God and say, hey, you made me do this. You brought me over here. No, we're melting. We're, we're, we're disintegrating in the consequence of what has happened. And so Isaiah is saying, actually, we, as you hand us over to this, as we experience it, we don't enjoy this. Uh, we're experiencing the sting of this. We're experiencing the horror of it. Lord, get us out of this. 
And so this is a, a beautiful thing of what rousing to action means. It's not just, oh, well, I'm a sinner. Let me live in sin. I'm going to enjoy my sin. It's, whoa, you gave me what I thought I wanted. I've learned I don't want this. Get me out of this. And so again, it's going back to the implications of the Lord's steadfast love. He's not doing this because of his righteousness. He's not doing this because Israel is Israel. He's doing this because the Lord is the Lord and he has his steadfast love. And so the point of this up to, up to now is that we understand who we are. We are people who are prone to want our sin. That's our fundamental desire. We are people who are prone to think our sin will give us greater joy than our Lord. I mean, we think of even Peter. What does the Lord say to him? Get behind me, Satan. That's, that's Peter, you know, one of the <clears throat> inner three apostles. And so this reminds us that we're not greater than we think we are. And that's what the catechism is driving home. Let, let's not think that because we're redeemed, we're, we're so high and mighty and, and, and we're glorious and we're these people that do this in our own strength. No, we still struggle with sin. We're still prone to sin. Uh, we still have a bent to that. Let's be humble in this reality. Now, of course, if we just stop there, uh, we're left in a pretty dire situation. But notice then that the catechism reminds us that we rest in God's gracious reward. Uh, this is dealing with, obviously, what we find in Scripture. As uh, Christ says, we have in Matthew 5, verse 12, uh, where the Lord is one of the texts that are cited. says, Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Christ is clearly giving us an assurance there is a, a, some sort of a reward. Hebrews 11:6, a reminder that as it's impossible to please God without faith, he goes on to say that he rewards those who seek him. So again, there's that reminder of rewards. We can think of crowns or jewels in heaven we can think of the parables. We can go through example after example. And so what I appreciate about the catechism is as Rome would turn to us then and say, well, listen, if you're going to say that you're justified by the grace of God, fine. But what do you do with the rewards? Uh, scripture talks about God giving rewards. It's not just a tradition of the church. Scripture says this literally. And so the catechism it, rather than just ignoring this, saying, okay, we, we have to account for this. That's true. It's in Scripture. We have to make our theology conform to the Scriptures. This is what we say as Reformed people. We, we don't want to make the Scriptures conform to our theology. And so this is what the Catechism wants us to understand, that these crowns are basically God crowning his good works. And, and we'll get into this more in our third point. And so basically... This is a pretty humbling thing, because as we're called to pursue God, which we all, I hope we all affirm that, I mean, consciously, we're called to pursue God in terms of our daily life, in terms of why we come together and worship, we're pursuing God. We, we want to draw near to Him as we desire Him to draw near to us. We're not getting into who calls and who makes us effective. We're not getting into all that. We're just talking about in terms of our, our sanctification, our conforming to Christ, and so the catechism is reminding us is that even as we conform to Christ and we bring forth great fruits, these are fruits of the faith. These are fruits that happened as we pursue God by the power of the Spirit. And so basically, God's crowning his own works. 
And so in the day of judgment, when, when uh, this is called to attention, it's not the Lord saying, look at this great person, what they've done. It's the Lord basically saying, look at what I've done through this person, uh, the fruits of their faith. He is calling attention to reality that these people who naturally hate God, uh, these people that would not normally turn to God, are those who have actually suffered in light of the gospel promises by the grace of God. And so this isn't calling us away from wanting to bring forth fruits. I mean, this is one of those, I'd say, secondary motivations. It's the assurance that as we bring forth fruit, not only do we get to enjoy God more because we're conforming to him and, and, and we're drawing closer to him, but we also have the assurance that on the day of judgment, he crowns these sanctifying works. That's what the catechism saying. So it's not adding to our justification, but it's saying, listen, Here's a secondary motivation. You say, well, why do I want to do this? Well, the Lord rewards those who seek him. Do we know how this all works out? Do we know fundamentally how the Lord does these things? No, we don't. But we have this promise that as we pursue the Lord, this pursuit's not in vain, and our suffering unto him or for his honor and glory is something that's good. And so now we move on and say, okay, so what is a prophet teaching us in terms of this pursuit of God, that, that we really do want to pursue him. We can't forget the introduction. Steadfast mercy. God is the one who manifests his steadfast mercy. This is what orients him to us. This is what always draws us to him. Even in our darkest days, even if someone goes through a season of sin, whatever it may be, we draw near to God based upon his steadfast love. We have this promise. We have to proceed in the confidence of that promise. But notice the beauty in verses 8 and 9. For he recalls for us, they are my people uh, who will not deal, deal falsely. And he became their savior. So here is this understanding and this recollection specifically walking through the Exodus time of where the Lord comes to Moses at the time of the burning bush. Uh, we think back to the angel of the Lord standing there. Uh, the Lord saying, I've heard their cries. God's not distant. Again, as that reminder, Israel thought God was distant. They're crying out to him, and it doesn't seem like he's acting. 400-some years, where's God? And here we find the Lord saying, I've heard their cries. I haven't been uh, ignoring them. I'm just waiting to act at the appropriate time. And so Isaiah's recalling this reality. This is who God is. But he also recalls something else. And their affliction, I was afflicted. So it's not just that God hears their cries, but it means in the midst of the actual suffering of his people, God feels that suffering. I mean, this is rather profound, that it's not just us going through something, even though we may feel as if we're going through it alone. It's, it's that reminder, God's there in the midst of his people in the Exodus, feeling their pain quite literally and feeling their affliction. And so that's the reminder of, you know, drawing near to God, having this assurance why we want to bring forth fruits. This God is walking with us in the midst of whatever we are facing. He has not turned his back on us. Uh, he's the one who has redeemed and shows his pity. And so in terms of, of this redemption, showing his pity, that's a rather marvelous thing, isn't it? 
You have Moses going to Pharaoh. You have the Lord taking them out of this land. I mean, when the Lord acts, he acts. You know, it's quite marvelous. It's nothing to, to, you know, scoff at or to mock at. Like when the Lord makes up his mind to do something, it is done. And it's quite remarkable when it happens. But now if we skip down to 63 verse 14, uh, and as we consider this, we have there the reminder of how the Lord cares for his people. The Lord's the one who builds his glorious name. So the Lord is the one who gives his people rest. He has led his people. And in this action, this is where we're getting sort of at our, our, our theology of the Lord crowning his works. So we receive the benefit of the Lord's redeeming mercy. And here the Lord brings his people into the land. Doing this vindicates his name. And it also is something that gives his people uh, truly a motivation to live unto the Lord. And so as they're living unto the Lord, experiencing his redemptive mercy, we're seeing the Lord manifest his graciousness, his gloriousness, and the call for the people to want to conform unto him. His spirit, his power is in the midst of them. So it's, it's that reminder that fundamentally we shouldn't be indifferent. We should want to be roused up to the Lord because he's the one who has called us, redeemed us, secured us in Christ, and made us alive. But going on then, really at the end of this Lord's Day and, and concluding this, this wonderful thing where we think about the fruits, that we actually rejoice in our fruits. And this is where we note in what the catechism is telling us. I love this answer. It is impossible for those who are, you know, engrafted into Christ or, um, you know, brought into Christ, however the language of the translation goes that you're reading. This means that we are going to bring forth fruits. And as we're grafted into Christ, I mean, what, what a wonderful language and drawing from John with the vine and the branches coming in, branches cutting out. Paul uses a similar stuff in Romans 11 or this similar metaphor. But the point is that we are brought into Christ. And so it's not just that, that we're indifferent. It's not just that we're wandering around. It's not that Israel was afflicted in the Exodus and God felt that affliction, but it's a reminder that, that God is, is doing this in, in the midst of his covenant people. He feels, he, he walks with us, he knows us. We are those who are truly brought into Christ, united to Christ, joined to him as his redeemed. And we're conscious of this. Because that's another thing. You may say, well, how do I know that this Christ is my Christ? Well, it's by true faith. So take hold of Christ by faith. I know he's my God. I believe he's my God. I submit to him. I trust in him. That's how I go forward. And so we know the true God and we walk in Christ. Now notice then when we turn back to Isaiah 64, when we skip over to verse 7, as we've already mentioned this confession, this acknowledgement, we fail to honor you. We're not rousing ourselves up. We're not waking up. We're not engaging with you. We failed. We've sinned. We've done wrong. Notice then if we skip down to verse 9, um, where the Lord is the one who or he understands who the Lord is. And notice this. We haven't pursued you. We haven't roused you. He said, but Lord, don't be so angry with us. I mean, how pretentious and arrogant is that? You are the God 
who levels nations, but Lord, you know, as we sinned against you, don't be so angry against us. Why would he say that? Because it goes back to the steadfast love. He asks the Lord, don't, don't remember our sin. We, we can't stand up against this. We, we can't dig ourselves out of this. Don't remember this. And he asks them, remember, we are your people. So verse 9 becomes this mind-boggling confession and, and request of God. We haven't been anxious for you. We haven't pursued you. We haven't, you know, run after you as we ought. We've sinned against you. We've ignored you. You've, you've given us what we deserve. But Lord, don't, don't remember this forever. Again, it's the steadfast love and mercy of God. Going on then, verses 10 through 11, he remembers what Jerusalem has been. Now again, when, when we read Jerusalem, we can take it so literally as to the city in the, angel, or in the, the, the Middle East, you know. We say, oh, it's Jerusalem over there. But it's a vision of peace. It's Zion. It's a place where God communes and rests with his people. And so it's not just that the temple's destroyed. It's not just that the city's leveled. He's saying, Lord, look, look what's happened of, as a result of this. Your city's no more. The place where we gather together in verse 10, that, that our fathers praise you. So he's referring to the temple, the, the entering into the presence of God in the ideal times. We praise you, we made sacrifices, we, we pursued you, we met with you, we communed with you. It's all leveled. And so he asks the Lord then in verse 12, please, Lord, restrain yourself. Don't continue to bring these things against us. Will you be silent? Right? I mean, that's a rather profound thing. Commun communicate with us. Uh, say something. Deliver some message. Let us know that it's going to be okay. Now, we go to the end of this confession. They're owning the fact that they've sinned. They're owning the reality. They, they deserve this. They're asking God to be merciful. And as God is being merciful, it's not just easy believism. But notice how I've skipped over verse 8. Because verse 8 really sets the tone for verse 9. It's not just steadfast love. That's certainly setting the context of this. But there's also a very specific request that is made of God. And this request first, but now, O Lord. So he's confessing, I am the creature. You are God. You are the king. That's what this is getting at. You are the king. You are the judge. You are the ruler. So that's that's what this means in, in the original language. It's getting at the reality of who you are. You, you are king. You are God. You are the, the one worthy of praise and worship. Uh, you are the covenant keeper one. You are the one who has met with Abraham. But he's also our father. So even in the midst of this, as the Lord hands him over to sin, they mount in his, in his hand in their iniquities, I still profess you to be my father. And you have every right to be angry and to punish us. We, we own that reality. That's who we are uh, we, we know the terms of this covenant as a national people. We deserve our exile. We deserve this. But you are still our father. But notice the beauty of this as he goes on. We are clay. And as he speaks of this clay, this is getting at the reality of what man is. Right? We, we're made from the clay of the dirt. Uh, we're, we're a mud pie. That's literally what we are. We're, we're just earthlings. Made from the earth, Adam, from the dust. And the Lord breathes into us. So Isaiah is saying, we tried to rise above this. That was wrong. 
we recognize our place. Now this understanding of clay, if, if we just reduce it to man, we're, we're missing some other things going on in Isaiah. Because this is used in other places in Isaiah 29, verse 16. The wicked are the ones that say, who's going to see me, right? And, and they're recognizing who they are. And the warning is, the Lord's the potter. But they're trying to flip the script and say, oh, we can triumph over God. We can do these things and we can triumph over him. But the potter is not the clay. That's what Isaiah says. Be careful. He's the potter. Going on in Isaiah 41, 25, the threat that the Lord calls a nation from the north, and it's that reminder that he's the one who again is the potter. They're serving his purpose. So when Isaiah says this, he's affirming the reality of what has been warned. The wicked trying to flip the script. They want to be the potter. They want God to be the clay. Isaiah is flipping this and saying, no, we've learned our place. We are the clay. You are the potter. You are the one who molds. You are the one who forms. You are the one who creates. You recreate. You redeem. And so he's saying, oh, Father, take us as clay. Be the potter and form us in the way that we want to be formed. Because notice the beauty of this. He uses this creation language of the Lord making stuff with the work of his hand, right? You think about that intimate creation, the first creation with Adam, of the Lord digging into the dirt, using this language of creating man, forming man, breathing into man. He's saying, Lord, do that again. Recreate us in terms of your redemptive promises. And so you're seeing what the catechism is laying out for us. That it's not just, well, I'm justified in Christ, therefore I can live any way I want. The catechism is saying, no, as we're redeemed in Christ, we're, we're not indifferent. We're, we're those who truly are called to be roused up and to want to pursue God, to, to wrestle with him in the positive sense of that word. Wrestle with his promises, wrestle with living them out for his honor and glory. But it's even more than that actually asking God to interrupt our lives and saying, I know I'm redeemed. I'm a sinner. I, I struggle with sin. I, I'm not conforming to as I ought. The, the people have failed. We've gone into exile. Our city's leveled. Don't give up on us, O oh Lord. Shape us. Form us. Mold us. Reshape us to be the glorified people you want us to be. That's the fundamental request here. And so when, when someone comes to you and says, well, this reform stuff is just easy believism, it's not really getting at anything of substance. You say, well, that's not at all what our catechism is teaching us. That's not what the scriptures are teaching us. We're not doing this based upon our own faithfulness, our own worthiness, our own goodness. We're basing it on the steadfast love of God. We're basing it on the work of Christ and his uh, making a redemption and making payment for us so we can be declared righteous in the presence of our Lord. And as we're declared righteous in the presence of our God, we, we're not living indifferently. And there may be seasons, there may be times when we struggle, true. But fundamentally at the core of our being, what, what should we want? What, what are we asking? We're asking that we want to be roused up. Consciously, we want to be roused up in, in, in pursuing the Lord. But we're also in the midst of this saying, Lord, mold us, shape us, 
transform us to be the people you want us to be, that we walk by your wisdom. You can hear this in the Psalms, search my heart, O Lord. In other words, I feel like I'm doing pretty well today. Uh, I'm not seeing something. <laughs> search my heart, convict me of something, O Lord. I need to conform unto your holy name. And so it's again, even understanding in wisdom literature, the consciousness, we're a continual work in progress being created and recreated by the hand of our God. And so then we return then to the question and conclusion. If we know we're righteous by faith, why do we live for God? What was the fundamental point of life? Well, it's understanding that this is not a static relationship, meaning that God meets us once, we meet God, we're declared righteous, he goes to heaven, we go about our days, and then at the end, somehow we meet up again. Clearly, what Isaiah is saying is, the Lord is one who is walking with his people. The Lord is there with his people. When we sin, we grieve the Spirit. And so it's this continual relationship as we're united to our God. And the fundamental desire is that God would recreate us, that we would be informed by his mercy and grace. And so when you say, well, what's the point or meaning of life? Well, the point and meaning of life is that we live for this great Redeemer. Uh, we, we hear the exhortation from Isaiah as he confesses sin. We weren't roused up. We were indifferent to you. We, we wanted our sin. That's wrong. We, we shouldn't desire those things. And so, O oh Lord, do not give up on us. Remember your steadfast love. Remember your mercy. Again, not Isaiah saying, I'm righteous. Remember your steadfast love and your mercy. Continue to transform and reshape me. That's the fundamental request, individually, corporately, as God's people. And so as we think about this implication in terms of even the dark times of life, somebody ever turns to you and says, well, I feel like I've sinned too much or I've done too much or whatever and I can't draw near to God. This is a good passage to remember. Isaiah calls attention to the steadfast love of God. Isaiah calls attention to the radical wickedness of Israel. And Isaiah still asks the Lord not to remember his sin <clears throat> and iniquity. Not because of something Isaiah has done, but because of the Lord's graciousness. Let us then desire to be clay in the hands of our great creator, redeemer, who reshapes us and molds us to be his people. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.